please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are looking at a a large section uh, that tells the story of Stephen and his martyrdom and what happens next. We have already looked at the bulk of the passage that contains the content of Stephen's magnificent sermon, his redemptive history laid out for all the hearers, wrapped in that exposition of the history of God's redeeming is a pointed accusation towards those who were accusing him. Remember what they were accusing him of? That he was skewing Moses and his teaching, skewing the temple, disrespecting it and its place, and skewing the law and a right understanding of God's law. Skewing God is what they were accusing him of, and he, by telling an accurate account of what the Bible teaches, puts them on guard and on notice, and everyone hears, they hear his accuracy, and then he makes the pointed accusation that the Sanhedrin, the leaders who had arrested him and were, in essence, trying him, they were just like those Jewish leaders who killed the prophets in the Old Testament times. Worse, they were doing the same thing when they killed Messiah. They were the ones who skewed Moses, the temple, and the law. They were the ones who skewed God. We pick up now in the passage. This is God's holy word. I begin at verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen... He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are moved by the sacrifice of Stephen, and we see the impact of his martyrdom. We know that you have called many to extreme suffering for the sake of Christ. Please stir our devotion to Christ as we think on this account. Please refresh our love for the gospel and our desire to see the whole world come to know Christ. Lord, where we may be fearful to tell others the gospel, allow this passage to move us to action that we might tell others 
proclaim to others how they may escape the just punishment for their sins through Christ. Help us not to love this life so much that we would forsake the opportunity to give testimony to the only one who can save eternal souls, our gracious Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen. Certainly the gospel is worth dying for. This past June, Joey Millar, who reports on the persecuted church, was writing on what he had found happening in Nigeria. This is back in June. Millar wrote, Thousands of men, women, and children have been killed in Nigeria in what the country's Christian community are condemning as religious and ethnic cleansing. Last weekend, this was in June, Last weekend, 238 Christians were killed in a number of attacks by militia in Plateau State, a region in the heart of the country. Campaigners are warning it is just the latest example of what they are saying is pure genocide in a country ravaged by religious division. This is just one country that you can find such a report. It's one of the most extreme right now. A joint statement issued by the Christian Association of Nigeria said that more than 6,000 6, Christian worshipers, mostly children, women, and aged, the aged, have already been killed this year. This was written in June, so in a six-month period. They said there is no doubt that the sole purpose of these attacks is aimed at ethnic cleansing, land-grabbing, and forceful ejection of the Christian natives from their ancestral land and heritage. This story could be repeated throughout the years since the first martyr, which we read this morning in our text. That's the big picture reality for Christians and for the church. At a very personal level, though, can we not agree? Those who say that they really have been saved by Christ, those of us who trust in him for eternal life, can we not agree that the gospel of Jesus, it is the only way for people to be saved from their sins Can't we see that's what the scripture teaches and what we know to be true? If that's the case, it's always worth preaching no matter the cost. If that's the case, even when the anger of the unrepentant, even when it rages against us, it is still worth whatever the cost to preach the message of the gospel. Calvin says when characterizing this passage, here is set down what the result of persecutions was meant to be that they are so far from breaking off the course of the gospel, they don't stop the gospel, that they are rather made helps to further the same through the wonderful counsel of God. In the mysterious counsel of God, he actually uses the worst of circumstances to grow his church. One of the things that excites me so much about a passage like this, as somber as it is, as violent as it is, is that if the enemies of Christ cannot stop the church by killing us, what are we scared of? And by the way, I'm not going to ask you to go die today, but I am going to ask you to ask, talk to your neighbor. I mean, can't we do that? We don't have to die. We probably won't in America. But you could tell that coworker, you could tell that high school friend of yours, you could tell that neighbor of yours, you could share where your trust is. That's the challenge as we consider this incredible story. 
Let's look at the sentence upon Stephen for his sermon and his beliefs and his teaching. Verse 54. Now when they, the Sanhedrin, the leaders, heard these things, they were enraged. When Stephen turned it back on them and told them that they were the killers of prophets and of Messiah, they were hot with anger. They were so mad that the text says in verse 54 that they ground their teeth at him. Um, they were so mad, they were beyond talking, they, ground, they, they grinded their teeth, gnarling like a wild animal. Verse 55, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. At that moment, knowing what was coming, a sense of stability, a peace that he was God's, He looks into heaven, and God gives him a vision. This is not to say this is true for every person when they're about to die who's a Christian. But at this moment, a very special moment in the history of the church, an important moment, upholds Stephen in this way. God gives him a picture of his glory. We can't imagine what God's glory in its fullness would be. We won't know that glory until we see him. But Stephen catches a glimpse of this, and he further explains what he sees. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, behold, and then he says out loud what he's seeing. He saw it, now he's going to say it out loud. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now the Jews are mad at him already for misrepresenting God. Now he's calling Jesus the Son of Man, which is a term used in the book of Daniel that speaks of the sovereign action of God. So he's equating Christ with God, saying, I see him standing, and I see the glory of God. And this just makes them all the matter, as you can imagine. Now I want you to notice something very careful, carefully about what he, or how he describes Jesus in his vision. Verse 55, and Jesus standing, do you notice that? Standing at the right hand of God. Verse 56, when he repeats it. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Of course, this is equality with God. He's calling Jesus God. But it's his stance that's interesting. Because we know from Scripture in other places that after Jesus finished his work on the cross, he was buried, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And he was, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, seated seated at the right hand of the Father. That's to show the finished nature of his work, that he now takes up this place of sovereign watch care over the earth with his Father. And in Psalm 110, this is spoken of the Son. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father as the mission of the church goes forward and people are subdued unto God until the last of the elect are brought home, brought in, And then Christ returns. He sits at the right hand of his Father as the nations are made a footstool. In fact, Hebrews talks about this culmination of things in the book of Hebrews. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So the, the perpetual action of Christ is to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Yet we read here, Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at his right hand. Now, it could mean nothing in particular, but more likely it emphasizes something of Jesus' activity on behalf of his child at this moment. Some scholars say it's him standing to receive Stephen into heaven. 
Others say it's a position of advocacy near the judge. Jesus told his disciples while he was in his earthly ministry, everyone who acknowledges me before before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here is Stephen acknowledging Christ before men. Jesus stands from the right hand of God to advocate for Stephen. I will acknowledge you, Stephen, to the Father because you stand now as my witness. There Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he announces his vision aloud and this angers them all the more because of the full import and impact of what he's saying. They get it. Verse 57, they cried with a loud voice and like little children stop their ear when they don't want to hear something. They stopped their ears and they rushed at him. No continued court case, no due process any further. They're going right to sentencing. Verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. There was no concern at this point for what the Romans might have thought because they did not have the legal right to execute anyone without the Romans saying so. And you don't see anyone sending in a permit for execution to the Romans here. This is immediate action. They go to stone him and throw him out of the city and go about this process of execution. F.F. Bruce, who's quite a scholar on first century uh, Judaism and the New Testament text itself, said, well, the fanatics did not trouble themselves about the judicial rule. Further, Bruce talks about early first century Jewish explanations of how they did stonings. It's a brutal, brutal execution process. Reading from the Mishnah, a commentary of sorts on first and second century Jewish practice, Bruce says, the criminal is first stripped. The drop from the stoning place was twice the height of a man. So when they take him outside of the city, there are these cliff, these dropping drops that are like small cliffs that go 10 to 15 feet. And they would push someone over them and then pile rocks on them. The drop from the stoning place was twice the height of a man. One of the witnesses pushed the criminal from behind. And the Mishnah says witnesses to feign some level of legality about this process. One of the witnesses pushes the criminal from behind so that he falls face downward. He is then turned over on his back. If he dies from his fall, that is sufficient. If not, a second witness takes a large stone and drops it onto his chest. If this causes death, it's sufficient. But if not, he is stoned by all the congregation of Israel. And they're not picking up little rocks and throwing in big rocks. So much so, an important detail is mentioned, you'll notice in verse 58. Um, In order to get complete range of motion with your shoulders and your arms and to be able to move and throw and pick up these boulders and drop them on the person, they have to take off their cloaks. It'd be like trying to wear this robe and throw something. It'd be bigger and heavier even. And these are expensive robes they're wearing. These are the leaders. Uh, These would have been hand-sewn types of garments. And notice what it says in verse 58. And the witnesses laid down their garments. This is how into this execution they were getting, how engaged they were. And notice where they lay their garments. At the feet of a young man named Saul. Someone had to watch these expensive garments while they were doing their work of execution so that no one else would steal them. And Paul, Saul at this time, was more than willing 
to watch them. And when this happened, verse 59, they were stoning Stephen. He speaks. And he calls out with a prayer. And the prayer should be reminiscent to all of us. Listen to what Stephen says as he's dying. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knows that Christ can have watch care over his soul. He goes to the right person for the watch care of his soul, the right person for all of us to go to for watch care of our soul. The one who's defeated death, who is seated at his his father's right hand, standing in this case, he can receive Christ's soul. He's not praying to a dead person. He's praying to the risen King Jesus. And he's saying, receive my spirit. Secondly, you notice what else he says. Falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, those who were carrying out this execution. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's God's mercy to take him out of his conscious state as they killed him by stoning. Receive my spirit, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Sounds just like Jesus on the cross. The difference being, this is a sinner saved by God's grace. Jesus was not. And Stephen prays for fellow sinners. He prays undoubtedly that this would have lasting impact, that this sin would not be the immediate destruction of them, that God would show restraint to these people at that moment, that they might come to know him, the Christ that saved him. Some scholars point out that God immediately answered this prayer as young Saul stood there and for the time was with full vigor in support of this. But that same Saul becomes Paul. And that Paul never, ever forgot this exact episode. And we'll see when we get to Acts 22. When we read in Galatians, him referring, this left a searing impression upon Saul from this day forward. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I love what Calvin says about uh, this whole episode. The reformers were facing the same kinds of ramifications to their teaching. Um, They knew full well by teaching what they were teaching, they were opposing a church that had no trouble using the power of the sword in conjunction with the government, government in the day. So there was a bit of shoring up the church to be ready for persecution in the days of the Reformation. So Calvin's analysis of what Stephen does and why it's significant for the church in church history is helpful. Calvin wrote, In like sort, the Lord will sometimes have his servants be brought to naught, as it were sometimes, to the end that their salvation may may be more the wonderful. Let us define this salvation, Calvin warns, not by the understanding of our flesh. We might not get rescued from this kind of fate. That's not what salvation ultimately is for us. Calvin says, let us not define this salvation, let us define the salvation not by the understanding of our flesh, but by faith. We see how Stephen lent or leaned not unto the judgment of his flesh, but rather assuring himself, even in very destruction physically, that he shall be saved. He suffereth death with a quiet mind. For undoubtedly, he was assured of this, that our life is hid in Christ in God. Of course, that's exactly what Paul wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Colossian Christians. Set your mind on things 
that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Note the contrast just before we move to the results of his martyrdom. Note the contrast between the people who are unbelieving and restless and angry and grinding their teeth at the gospel and Stephen who's resting in Christ in whom his life is hidden. In verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth. That's unbelief. That's restlessness. But in verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Derek Thomas characterizes this anger of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin became irrational, hot with rage, murderous in their thoughts, utterly consumed with anger. Stephen was contemplative, calm. Now, what are the results of this martyrdom that we have witnessed in Stephen? I'll give you five different results that happen in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8. Look there with me, and you see the first right away in in verse 1. That martyrdom and its immediate occurrence emboldened the enemies of Christ, and there was a great spike or great rise in persecution. Verse 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Since the Sanhedrin was able to move with such seeming swiftness and impunity, rooting out Christianity by forceful means took on momentum right after that happened. The Romans didn't stop us. Let's squash this now. In and around Jerusalem, where the chief leaders of the Jews were, where the temple was, we need to squash this out now. And they went after Christians in violent fashion. There might have been hesitation. Now there wasn't because the Romans didn't seem to be stepping in. Seizing property, making false charges to have Christians put in jail, punished by the Romans, loss of businesses and income. Christians were boycotted. Often families split over this. Sporadic violent attacks on Christians to intimidate intimidate the whole of the church. Stephen's killing heartened the haters of Christ against the church. There's a second thing we see come from from Stephen's martyrdom. It's there in verse 1 also. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and notice what happens. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So because of the persecution, it's not that God calls us all when there is persecution going on to march headlong into it and die. It's when we're brought into this situation where we stand for Christ, but there's opportunity to move out of, the, out of Jerusalem. Now you'll notice that the great commission of Jesus was that the commission would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. He didn't say how it happened necessarily. At least early on, this is how God exacts his will as he, through persecution, spreads his people out. Now, Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, so it's possible that those who were not from Jerusalem proper, they had to go immediately. They had nowhere to hide. And so they spread out. So a second result of the martyrdom of Stephen is the spreading out or the scattering of Christians to the outlying areas, the greater state of Judea, and then the region of Samaria, which, by the way, the Gentiles lived in. So it's a pressing of the gospel out and away from Jerusalem to the Gentiles. This is a definite result of what happens. Interestingly, Calvin, when he's trying to encourage 
pastors of churches to stay fast if persecution would come. Not to expect that everybody in the church would necessarily uh, have to stay right there and undergo it, but the pastors should. And he uses as an example the apostles. The apostles did not leave Jerusalem when this happened. They stayed there. And almost all of them, church history says, died in and around Jerusalem within 10 to 12 years of this. Calvin said, if both his flock and he have to encounter with the adversary, the pastor and his people, he is a treacherous forsaker of his office if he stand not stoutly to even the end. Private persons have greater liberty. I think Calvin is right. The third result of Stephen's martyrdom, it's more subtle, but it's right there in verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. One of the reasons we have funerals, memorial services, services of witness to the resurrection is because it's right for believers to mourn the loss of such giftedness in our midst. Stephen's fine, but the people no longer have his gifts, and they mourn this, and they mourn what it means for giftedness, that maybe this would be the result for others. So another result of martyrdom is a great heaviness, a somber disposition that strikes all those considering what they just saw happen in the person of Stephen. Now, notice something particular about Stephen. I don't want to develop a whole doctrine, a burial here, but it's helpful to note that they buried Stephen's body. And that was a show of respect to the earthly temple that God had ordained. It was also following the example of laying Christ's body in a tomb, burying him. It's a statement of faith about the resurrection. We sow in corruption what will be raised in incorruption on that great day. So we see that practice right away. But also, notice the great lamentation. It's right for us to grieve. It's one of those things that just, it's a, in Christianity, when we have funerals and we call them celebrations of life, I know it's meant. It's meant well. And we should be celebrating the memory of a person's life ongoing. But we need to mourn. We need to come into the house of God and pray for God's comfort that only he can give And he gives it primarily as a reminder of the resurrection. It's not really remembering the person's life. It's remembering Jesus is alive and we will be with him too. And that's what we need in those moments. That's what they are, no doubt, focusing on. It wasn't a celebration of Stephen's life. It was a mourning over the loss of Stephen from their midst. And asking God to supply for them what they need. Not to be happy but to fulfill the mission that he had given him. Lord, how do we fulfill the mission if you take Stephen? Now God will show him in an amazing way. There's a fourth result of the martyrdom of Stephen that I would like you to see. Every mention of this person uh, sets up something great that will come, though we don't know it at the moment. We do because we know what comes next. The event of Stephen's execution brought the involvement of Saul. And Saul took up the persecution of Christians as his personal mission after that day. In verse 58, when they stoned him, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. Watching these huge stones break the body of Stephen, the sound, the awful sound that must have made, and Saul approved it. He thought it was good and it was right. 
And this is why the description in verse 3 is so um, animalistic. Imagine a wild bear mauling a person. This is Paul on the church. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Luke makes a very careful point in this episode to bring out the person of Saul. He is such an important figure. Luke notes the personal commitment of Saul to root out Christianity. The zeal that we see from the apostle in his writings and the epistles. He had a negative zeal towards Christ and the church before God changed him. Luke wants us to see how fanatical Saul was against Christ and his followers. And Saul would never ever forget Stephen and his personal wicked involvement in executing him. The last thing I want you to see, the last result of the martyrdom of Christ, is in verse 4. begins at verse 1 with this statement of their scattering. Look at verse 1 and then skip to verse 4. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. This harkens to the exact language of Jesus' great commission to go out and make disciples of all the nations. Now, despite the terror of the day, despite the somberness of their mourning, despite the threat on themselves for sharing witness of Christ, despite the hardship of personal and communal loss immediately experienced after they saw Stephen be bludgeoned to death by rocks, despite the urgency of their need to leave Jerusalem. Verse 4, when they scattered, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What happens if you preach the word? Someone laughs at you. They talk behind your back. You might not get a promotion. They might not invite you to a party. They might not think you're cool. So what? Those who were scattered, they went about preaching the word. Wherever you find yourself, that's what you should be doing. I'm not the only one that should be doing this. For you, it may look different. Frankly, it's more powerful in many respects interpersonally when you share who you rest in for eternity. Because make no mistake, everyone wonders about it. They fill their lives with stuff so they don't have to answer the question, but in the pit of their being, they know there's more to life than this. They don't want to talk about the question, or they say, I'm an atheist, as a way to stop you from asking them about what they're going to do for eternity. I don't mean the first time you meet someone, go be Ned Flanders to him. I'm not saying that. Don't be that guy. But if you really think the gospel is worth what we say it is, worth dying for, you are going to at some point think less of yourself and your comfort and you're not going to this party or getting that job or being made fun of in the high school. You're going to care less about that and more about their eternal soul. Calvin said, Luke declares that it came to pass by the wonderful providence of God that the scattering abroad of the faithful should bring many unto the unity of faith. Thus does the Lord use to bring light out of darkness and life out of death for the voice of the gospel, which was heard here, heretofore, in one place only, but now it sounded out everywhere. Isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ always worth preaching, no matter the cost. The martyrdom of Stephen is a vivid reminder 
that the gospel is always worth preaching, even when the anger of unrepentant, the unrepentant rages against us. About 60 years after the death of the last apostle, there was one who was a disciple of the apostles. He knew the apostle John, who most likely lived the longest. Maybe the only one that didn't die a martyr probably died of old age in exile. Polycarp, a pastor in the church at Smyrna, and there was a terrible wave of persecutions against Christians around 155. Several leaders of the church were killed at Smyrna, even the older ones, the aged ones, and Polycarp was in his late 80s. Bring Polycarp, they said. When the old bishop learned that he was being sought, he followed the advice of the flock and he hid for several days. But, in, but after he changed to a different hiding place, he was yet discovered. He decided the arrest was the will of God. He refused to flee any further and he calmly awaited those who came after him. The proconsul who presided at his trial tried to persuade him, urging him to think about his advanced age. Worship the emperor. Just stop preaching Christianity, worship the emperor, and we'll let you go. But Polycarp refused. And the judge ordered him to cry, we want you to say out with the atheists. And they called the Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the gods of Rome. All you need to do is say out with the atheists, Polycarp, and we'll spare you in your old age. Don't go down this way. To this, Polycarp responded by pointing to the crowd, the proconsul, He said, yes, out with the atheists, and he points back at them. Again, the judge insisted, promising that if he would swear by the emperor and curse Christ, he would be free to go. But Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? Thus the dialogue went on, and when the judge threatened him with burning him alive, Polycarp simply answered that the fire that the judge could light would only last one moment, whereas the eternal fire would never go out. Finally, we are told that after that, he was tied to the post in the pyre, and he looked up and prayed, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment, so that jointly with your martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this, I bless and glorify you. Amen. I'm just saying, we could tell our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, in the light 